There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Georgie Corridor-Cole, the founder of Sherlux, and welcome to today's In Conversation With podcast. I can't tell you how honoured I am to welcome my guest today. Dame Stephanie Shirley was a refugee, a workplace revolutionary, a tech entrepreneur, and now an ardent philanthropist. Her company, Freelance Programmers, founded in 1962, was ultimately valued at almost $3 billion, employed women only in the early days, and turned 70 of her staff into millionaires. Since retiring, Dame Stephanie's focus has been on philanthropy, and over the last 30 years, she has given away almost £70 million to good causes. Together, her three autism charities, Autistica, Priors Court, and Autism at Kingwood, employ close to a 1,000 people. I am thrilled to say she's here with me today to talk more about her incredible life. It really is an incredible life. So do stay listening. Her career, which was just so revolutionary, and her informed, inspiring advice for helping the autistic and neurodiverse community. Welcome, Dame Stephanie. I often say I'm thrilled to be joined by guest, but never more so than today. Thank you very much indeed. That's a lovely introduction. I have to tell you that I, I listened to your TED Talk three times, got home, made my husband listen to it twice. We both had tears rolling down our cheeks and your achievements are just phenomenal. I, I think you say from refugee to entrepreneur to philanthropist. Can we, can we talk a bit about your fascinating story from the beginning and where you were born and how you came to England? I was born of a part Jewish family in Dortmund, which is in West Germany. And uh, at the time when Hitler came to power, things became very difficult. And we moved around um, several, several countries in Europe before settling in Vienna, which was my mother's home city. And then when the Anschluss uh, in 1938 came, it became very dangerous to live there. And my parents did a very brave thing. They organized for me to come to England into the arms of strangers uh, on what's called the kinder transport. It was the largest ever recorded migration of children. So I arrived in England July the 6th, 1939, and it almost feels as if my life started then. And I was fostered by a childless couple in the Midlands of England and went to four different schools when at 18, uh, became naturalised British, signed, swore an oath of allegiance in front of a justice of the peace, and have become, I think at least, more English than the English. So <laughs> it's a difficult start, and that disruptive start. What age were you, Dame Stephanie, when, when you arrived in England? I was five years old. You think how small a five-year-old is. It was Gosh. a train of uh, about a thousand children with just two adults, and I know I was one of the youngest. Um, it was not a, an easy start. It was fairly traumatic. It's made a big difference to the whole of my life. It made me realise that if I could deal with that, I could deal with anything. So it's given me a sort of resilience that is very useful to an entrepreneur. I have a five-year-old, and I mean we've only just started. I'm, you've already moved me to tears. The the concept of putting her on a train blows my mind. Were you aware of it? Do you remember it? I was aware of the distress around me, the, the number of 
women, mainly women, but men as well, crying on the station at the in Vienna. And they did a sort of, I've never heard it elsewhere, a sort of wailing. So I think it's a Jewish thing. And it was a horrendous sound of parents saying goodbye to their children. One or two of them snatched their children off the train at the very last minute. They couldn't bear to say goodbye. But it was, in fact, to save our lives. I think it's a very brave thing yeah. for parents to do. And you, you said that you now feel you are as, as British as the most British of the Brits. Did you later track down your birth parents? I believe you did. We, we always knew that they were alive. At one time, we had a letter saying my mother was lost, and a sort of euphemism used in front of children. But in the main, we knew that they were alive and they knew where we were. But it was many years before we lived as a family again. And sadly, we never really bonded again because I had built relationships with my foster parents to all intents and purposes. I'm their child, except for birth. And when I got together with my own parents, it was a dutiful relationship, but not really a loving one. Or a natural one, perhaps, after all that time. After all that time. Yeah. And, and what sort of upbringing did you have from your foster parents here in England? Very, a very conventional uh, upbringing. Um, we were brought up to be little ladies. We wore gloves when we went outside. We played in the fields. It was safe then to play, children to play on their own. And it was a very stable environment. One of the things that happened was that the grown-ups were always talking about the abdication. And I as a child felt that how, how romantic that the king should give up his crown for the woman he loved. But my foster parents were very different view. He didn't do his duty. He didn't do his duty. And that has stuck with me um, so that I think it is behoves each and every one of us to do our duty. And I really try to do mine. What did you want to do when you left school? I mean, you, you went on and achieved so much. You said you grew up as a little lady. I mean, presumably it wasn't the norm for women to have, well, it wasn't the norm for women to have high-flying careers. Did you stand apart from the rest as you grew up? Were you clear that you wanted a career and higher education? And were there role models that you looked at and inspired you at that time of your life? I knew how important education was. I mean, as a way out of poverty. But also I loved to learn. I um, really enjoyed school. In particular, I enjoyed mathematics. And at one time, my girls' school didn't teach science subjects. You know, the only science subject thought respectable for girls was the study of plants. I really had to battle to get tuition in mathematics. And they eventually agreed to send me to the boys' school for my mathematics lessons. No way! So I was going between the two schools all the time. And it was a, a rude awakening, um, perhaps a salutary a reminder or forerunner of what the world of work was like, the sexist, yeah. catcalling, whistling. It was not, not, not an easy start. But I do love mathematics and I wanted to study mathematics, but um, things didn't turn out that way. And I started working at, at 18, but as a mathematical clerk, a very junior position, uh, pounding a desk calculator for several years, actually, before I got promoted. And and what what year was that when you when you left school? So so was that at eighteen? I it was eighteen. So I started work at eighteen. Oh, and what year are we in? 
Well, I was born 33, you do the arithmetic. Okay, okay, so 51, all right. So 1951, you're working as a, as a maths doc. Luckily, my, math, my arithmetic got me there quite quickly. You notice that mathematicians are no good at arithmetic. I know, well, I'm not definitely not a mathematician, but I am quite quick at adding up. <laughs> so you're spot on. So 1951, and were you pushing already against boundaries at that point? I was told that in my interview that I had at 18, I was asking about pensions. So it says a lot about how unsettled I was and how unsafe I still felt. Yes. Um, once a refugee, always a refugee is something that's said. And I don't think it's true, but it stays with you a long, long time. It's mm. in your psyche um, mm. that, you know, home is something that's very precious and that you have to hang on to it. And you, you were then promoted. So you didn't go to university or did you go later? I studied for six or seven years at, at evening classes. So that after I'd done a day's work, three times a week, I would go to evening classes and eventually took my degree as an external student um, and got an honours degree in mathematics. And then nothing really would hold me back. Um, I got promoted. I began to work on early computers. Um, I had a very good boss, the second boss I had, um, who really created an environment of innovation, of team working. Um, and I learned a lot from him. He wasn't a formal mentor. I mean, I never really knew him. He was Mr. Flowers, a very famous name in, in computer history. He was a Mr. Flowers to me, but uh, he was a listening manager and really gave me all the opportunities that I needed. Well, how wonderful that he was, he was around. Were you the only woman you know, doing this course? Not, not the only woman. There were about three scientific women in a... Uh, an establishment of 2,000 people. There were women clerical staff, so one didn't feel too isolated. Nice. It was quite, quite stressful the first time you walked into the canteen and hundreds of male faces <laughs> turned around to see another female walk in through the door. But it, th those days are past, and, and nowadays we have really not just a single woman, uh, but always groups of women, um, who can support each other. And I think it's something that the sisterhood really requires us to do. It's almost natural for us to support each other. Yes, we do. We do, don't we, as a sex? Maybe that's where it comes from. And you you obviously saw this future in computers. I mean, the fact that you talk about computers in the 50s sort of blows my mind. I mean, clearly there were amazing things happening during the Second World War, et cetera, but, you know, with programming, but with code. And where did that interest come from or that realisation that that was the future? Oh, we didn't. It wasn't that we saw the future or had any visionary concept at all. It was just such fun working with computers. And what were computers in those days? Well, they looked like perhaps some large kitchen cabinets um, <laughs> they had valves so they generated quite a lot of heat they were very expensive a pound a minute or something like that which was an enormous sum of money in those days so I used to have a stomach ache every time I was going on the computer just from sure nerves I had to get in and off and how many seconds am I going to use computing was very different in those days we um, worked in machine code or later on some higher level languages that made it much easier. When the high level languages came in, I really thought that might be the end of programming as we knew it, but it's, it has remained fascinating. The, the exciting thing about technology is that it's always improving, always moving on, and, and there's no end point. You know, yeah. you, not that you've, you've got there, but you know, there's always something further to do.
Gosh, tell me about it. When I when I chose the digital world for my career, I didn't realise quite how relentless it would be. Uh, so you've hit the nail on the head right there. Can you talk to us about what led you to set up freelance programmers and yeah, w- what the journey was to launching your business and how you did that in those days as a woman? You won't believe that um, in my first eight years of, of work, there were two pay scales, one for men and a lower pay scale for women. That was the situation for the few women that were involved in... Doing the same job. Doing exactly the same job. And eventually the sexism, and the patronisation, the patting me on the head, the calling me dear, the, the flirtations, the pinching my bottoms, got, got a bit too much for me. And I decided I'd had enough of sexism and I'd been patronized as a Jew. I wasn't going to be patronized as a woman. So I set up my company, not to make money, though eventually I did, but to counter that sexism and set up a company that was the sort of company I would like to work for. And I knew, guessed, that other women would like to work for. So it was what's called a social business, uh, really um, measuring success in social terms. How many women were we employing? How many unmarried mothers were we, were we employing? How many disabled people were we employing? Rather than the bottom line, just the, the, the money that, that we did eventually, of course, have to make. And how did you fund the business? With my own labour and later on with a second mortgage on the family home, which is not a comfortable thing to do. It's a very traditional thing to do. And nowadays people raise lots of money ever before the business gets established. Um, But that was not the norm then. Nor, I think, would it ever have been really practical for me to try to raise money as a woman. I I was very much an outlier and people thought I was... Well, I mean, one thing when I married, they thought uh, I would stop working. You know, why should you go on working? Your husband has a good job. But to me, work is not just something I do when I'd rather be doing something else. I actually enjoy work. Yes, shock horror. Shock horror can be quite enjoyable and fulfilling. And can you tell us quite what you did as a business? So, you know, it was software programming. What does that mean in the 50s well it was 1962 wasn't it when you founded your company what did that actually mean we would get a contract from an outside commercial company it wasn't public sector in those days and we would be given a task which we would then break down into very small units and show graphically in, in a flow chart defining precisely what had to be done and we would then code that in machine code or sometimes autocoder and then write it check it, because it was almost impossible to write a program without making mistakes, um, and then submit it to the computer. Uh, it would then be punched onto cards or paper tape, repunched in order to verify that, and then actually submit it to the computer, and probably wouldn't even go in. It made a mistake right in the input routine. So it was extremely detailed. Yeah. Um, it was very much, you know, you've either got it right or you've got it wrong, and that's one of the things about science and one of the things perhaps why women are not very keen on science there's no middle way I, if it's right it's right yeah so if you put if you made an error later on that was a pretty painful pretty painful process to go back to the beginning the object of the exercise was to get rid of your errors not to make them because you knew you were going to make them and who were your clients David Stephanie well I targeted American companies working in this country um, because um, they were more used to using consultants and outside people so I had companies like Mars, 
I also had people like British Steel, British Railway was, was one of our earliest ones. So that came in of itself, uh, whereas the American ones I actually went out and marketed and targeted. Now, you're, you're very well known as Steve. Um, someone even said you perhaps prefer to be called Steve. Is, is that the case? Can you talk us through why you are known as Steve Shirley? And I mean, probably quite obvious, but talk us through that story and talk us through winning business from those clients as a woman. And yeah, where that where that name has come from. I was very naive. I didn't know anything at all about business. So what I was doing was writing letters to people who were um, advertising for programmers and saying effectively, um, I, I'm not applying for a job, but I can write, provide programming services for you. Are you interested? And I was launching these letters out about 12 a week by letter, even before the days of email that they were typed, and receiving absolutely no response whatsoever. And um, my dear husband suggested that perhaps it was this name that I was signing, the double feminine Stephanie Shirley, Shirley being my marital name. And so I started to write the same sort of letters to the same sort of prospects, but signing them Steve Shirley. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Uh, I began to get some responses. The tables turned. <laughs> so the tables turned. And it stuck. Steve, it takes me back to my very creative years in the 1960s. Um, and uh, Dame Stephanie's all right when you're booking a table in a restaurant. <laughs> but affectionately known as Steve. Absolutely. And can you talk to us about the evolution of the business? I mean, my God, you went on to be valued at almost $3 billion. I, mean, I don't know how, how many zeros that is. I mean, that's huge. What year was that? And can you just tell us a little bit about, about the evolution, the growth, the size of, of you know, the, the number of employees? Uh, I know you were all women. Ironically, you were then forced to start to employ men. Um, yeah, talk to us a bit about the, the business's journey. It was a very slow burn. You know, I'm almost ashamed to think how many years it was before we really turned a profit. To begin with, I didn't draw any salary or even, even expenses. So it must have been something like three or four years before I drew even a modest salary. So that shows how slow the profits were. Um, in terms of staff, it always sounded very much greater because we employed a lot of women who were working from home on a basically zero hour contract, so we didn't call them that. And they liked that flexibility. And it meant that we could have capacity without actually having the overhead of what we effectively did was move payroll into purchase ledger. Uh, where did this idea of women working from home and the flexibility come from? Because, you know, today that that's the ideal, right, for, for a working mother. But A, it wasn't the norm to be working in the 60s necessarily as a woman. And B, certainly not from home. You know, now it seems so obvious, but that was hugely forward thinking. Well, I think I am. A bit revolutionary <laughs> because I haven't had a good education. Um, nobody had told me what one wasn't supposed to do. So it seemed to me quite logical. I started the business on my dining room table. I worked from home. I still work from home. Uh, why shouldn't other people have the same advantages? Seemed obvious. Back to the growth of... Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The business. Well, of the first 300 staff, 297 were women. And that, at the time we, 1975, when equal opportunities legislation came in, and as a sort of unintended consequence, we had to welcome the men in and make equal opportunities for men. We were a medium-sized company, uh, struggling month to month to turn a profit. As always, cash flow was more important than turning a profit. Uh, because more companies go out of business because they run out of cash than because they're they're unprofitable. So I slowly learned something about business. I, I contacted the local management centre um, and got a bit of help from them as to how I was supposed to run a business. I wanted it to be a bit like the John Lewis organisation where the staff actually owned the company. So it took me 11 years to actually get the company into staff ownership or co-ownership. Um, and uh, it turned into a very different sort of company. We were remembered, um, not only for our gender, um, but remembered because we had such very strict controls over how we developed software. Um, because we were all working remotely, we became very disciplined, we doc documented carefully, um, and that almost became a, a strength of the organization rather than a weakness. And you grew and grew and grew uh, to this incredible valuation. What, what was the pinnacle? What year was the pinnacle of the business? Well, I did something that entrepreneurs are very bad at doing. And I, I, I did it and I did it well, but I did it late. I got in professional managers to run it because frankly, the more successful the company was, the less I enjoyed doing it. I like starting things. I like doing new things. I like solving problems. I don't actually like running things. So I, I got in professional managers and it was they who turned it into a big commercial success because they really sort of took it flying and uh, it became uh, part of software history, really. And where did it end up? Where is it today? And it was taken over after 45 years, which is a long time in business, and uh, is now part of Sopra Steria, which is a 40,000 strong software company, initially in France, uh, but it's now a global company. We went global. We had half our staff in India at one time. Uh, and I mean, talk to me about turning 70 of your staff into millionaires. And, and actually, without going into detail, you, you really inspired me listening to your TED Talk, which I would really encourage people to listen to, which is called Why Do Ambitious Women Have Flatheads? Um, I'll let them, I'll, I'll let anyone listening work that out. You've already alluded to being patted on the head uh, in a rather patronising manner. We'll leave it there. But anyway, people must listen. It's the most wonderful TED Talk. But yeah, I found that sort of sharing of the upsides with one staff really inspiring. Where did that idea come from? Well, we shared the the horrors of running a business. The, the, the 70s recession was pretty difficult. 
there was not much work around. Um, there was no promotions for anyone. It, we, we just struggled to, to survive. And when a group of people have helped to take you through that, those sorts of problems, they, it, it's right and proper that they should um, also share in, in the, the, the pleasures and the, the rewards when they come. And they did eventually come. We became very successful. And so many of the staff, especially the ones that had been with me right from the beginning, became wealthy in their own right. And they, some of them have also turned it to philanthropy and enjoying giving the money away because it was a bonanza. Phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. I mean, you are, you're known for actually falling off the Sunday Times rich list because you gave so much of your wealth away. I mean, what what a legacy. I mean, how incredible. Can, can you talk to us about your the sort of third phase of your life into philanthropy? Perhaps this is a, a good point to talk about your son, Giles. He was your only child, I believe. And I know he very sadly died. Can you talk to us about him and his life? And, and that, I think, will we'll bring us into this third phase, won't it? Well, my Gilesy started off a very beautiful and contented and happy baby. And at first, I thought we were doing rather well. A mathematics degree is, is not very helpful in, in, in learning your, to um, mother your first child. But at three and a half, he turned into a wild, unmanageable toddler. Not the usual terrible twos, uh, but rather he was eventually diagnosed as autistic and really the bad times began because he was wild he lost his speech at what age did he lose his speech about two and a half I mean he hadn't got much but it started with just a quiet day and you sort of think he's a bit quiet today and then the next day you're really sort of encouraging speech in a deliberate way which you normally are not because I think he couldn't speak he, he was wild he was frustrated he was screaming he was kicking he was banging his head on the wall he you know, it was, it was a very, very bad time. And he finished up in hospital. But eventually I got him out and set up a, my, the first charity in order to provide a suitable home um, for him and for others. And that I'm pr proud to say is autism at Kingwood. Kingwood is where, where, near where we live. Where is that? Henry on Thames. So Kingwood oh. is just outside Henley. No, Kingwood Common. It is precisely Kingwood Common. Oh, my mother is from Henley on Thames. We share, we share most things. <laughs> um, so Kingwood was the home that you founded, the residential home you founded for children with autism. At what age did Giles move into Kingwood? He was 23, that's right. And most people who, who join Kingwood um, are 18, which is ideal. They're leaving school. They obviously can't live at home anymore. So it's adult care. One is encouraged not to say lifetime care because one is not able to promise that but it is intended to be lifetime care. Eventually, Giles was living a, a quiet, dignified life in the community. And then quite suddenly, he died in his first ever overnight seizure and life turned into a horror for me, really. It took a long time for me to recover um, so much of my life. And my husband was totally committed to Giles that um, his sudden death at an early age of 35 was really very difficult to accept. But Kingwood has gone on and is now looking after 100, 150 people, adults, 24-7. It does diagnosis services. It, it provides um, holiday care. Um, it provides counselling uh, for parents. Um, I'm enormously proud of it. But it took a long time to become freestanding, 17 years, literally 17 years before it was financially and managerially independent of me. 
So it just shows how, how difficult it is to create something that is stable. I now expect Kingwood to go on uh, to grow, to change, to move, to develop, but to get it stable so that it actually has not only trustees, but sound management, training facilities, recruitment capacity. This is really the achievement that any person in business is aiming for. Hmm. How does Prize Court fit into to this mix? Well, I went to the States to, in fact, do a visit together with the chief executive of Kingwood and saw there a school called the Higashi School, Japanese origin. And they were getting such good results from autistic pupils that I came back to England thoroughly enthused, saying, well, we need a school like that in Britain. And so I went to see the Department of Education and they kindly pointed out that it wasn't the department that set up new schools, it was parents. So I went and set up Prior's Court School, which I'm enormously proud of. Um, it is now a world-renowned um, it has been going 23 or 4 years now. Uh, it has nearly 90 pupils aged 5 to 25 and getting enormously positive results. Many of the children are um, aimed for modest work activity, so we're training them to, to live independently, to do their own laundry. To I mean, These are children that m- mainly don't speak, have epilepsy, Uh, are profoundly, we talk about autism with complex needs. So they are extremely difficult and they've tried many other schools. So I'm very proud of Prior's Court. So it's quite different from ASD. This is severe autism impacting their speech and and, yeah, everyday capabilities. All with learning disability, many without speech and some with most extraordinary sort of eating and other habits. A a wonderful school. Where is it, Dame Stephanie? It's near Newbury. Yes, okay, I thought so. Yeah, I know, exactly. And to give some idea of the vulnerability of the pupils, the smallest fee rate is 90,000 a year, and that is for a day pupil. The largest is 400,000 a year per pupil. So you can see why the local authorities work hard to sort of keep... <laughs> Gosh, that's staggering. But we, we can really make a good lifestyle for a person that everybody else has given up on. Yeah. Autistica, you founded, and possibly if you are someone who's come into contact with children and adults with autism, you, you may well know of it. For people that don't, can you tell us about the birth of that charity, the mission of that charity? And could you sort of set the scene a little bit about the autism landscape in this country today? Autism affects 350,000 people in the UK. That includes people who are just mildly affected, right through to people who would ideally go to school at Prior's Court and reside at Kingwood Trust. The way in which autism is viewed has changed from being it's a psychological disorder to being a way, a different way of living. It's moved from being thought of as medical, but rather social. And so the attitude to autism is much more positive. And many autistic people are able to go to work, are able to really contribute in the arts and sciences, so that it's quite a change over the years that I've been working there. I still do other projects outside. I did think tank on autism for for Britain a few years ago and that made quite a difference. I've paid for studies of the economics of autism and that's helpful when you're talking with government. They're not terribly interested in oh these poor people we really have to help them but they they are interested when you say that autism costs the, the nation 34 billion a year in that and that is in lost employment 
we're trying to get more people into employment, move them off benefits into paying tax. And that's a big mission of Autistica, isn't it? As well as as well as other things. I know you work with a lot of corporates and you, you work with individuals as well. Can you tell us more about the charity and when you founded it? It's a large, successful charity. Can, can you tell us a bit more about what you do? Well, in relative terms, I think it's a medium-sized charity. It employs something like 24 people. Well, well-respected, I would say. Well-respected, yes, it is. The focus is on research things that other people haven't done, pure research, applied research, things that make the life of a person with autism longer, healthier and happier. So it's quite practical things. There's been a big emphasis on employment. Currently, they're working together with the charity Young Autism to understand why so many people with autism are born with or acquire epilepsy And conversely, people with epilepsy, 40% of them are autistic. There's a big overlap, which we need to understand. So it's research. And because it spends all all the money it raises, that's the, the one which I always give my money to. Can you talk to us a little bit about how it is not about how to cure or treat people? It's about how to understand them and how to see their strength. I remember somebody saying... There's a stereotype that somebody with autism might be good at computer science or there are certain stereotypical career paths more able for autistic people to follow. But actually, there are other skills like resilience and relentlessness that can be really beneficial to businesses. Can you elaborate on that and also talk about how businesses can do more to employ people with neurodiversity? One of the things that autistic people have, without exception, is what's called hyperfocus. They really focus very long and deep and hard on on something. This is true for people who are without speech and might spend half an hour looking at the label on on some toy. Two people with double firsts uh, in Harvard and Yale who are able to contribute to the academic world. That focus is rare. It's valuable. They're also able to see patterns. So they are strong in music, law and mathematics and computing in particular. So computing, GCHQ, for example, goes out of its way to recruit people with autism because they know that they have the sort of skills that they need. Now, they may be slightly difficult to assimilate into a work environment to begin with, but the average cost of of making the necessary adjustments is measured at something like $200 once-off retrofitting costs. That is to change things like lighting, perhaps desk positioning, quite small things, relatively speaking, to get access to a skilled, focused, dedicated workforce in short supply. I know that um, Matt Hancock has been doing some work in the neurodiversity space and working hard to get corporates to take more responsibility and be, be more proactive. What would you say to other business owners listening there, obviously varying degrees of autism, but what would you say to encourage businesses or people in HR to, to change the way they do things in their mindset? Make sure that you don't miss out on this skilled labour force. It's a loyal labour force. Uh, once they settle into a job, they, they tend to really stay almost too long You have to encourage them to move on, to go for promotion, because they're they're very happy uh, doing what they're doing. It may mean changing the way in which you recruit. Uh, For example, most of us 
put a great emphasis on the interview, which requires just the skills that people with autism haven't got. So that really doesn't work. So what I always advise is the modern equivalent of the typing test. Take somebody on trial for three days, three weeks, and just see how they do. And then you will find that they shine almost immediately because they're doing things that they love, that they like, that they can focus on and really contribute to the teamwork. Yeah, and demonstrate their worth. I think it was someone from your charity who said someone with neurodiversity doesn't like to be given curveballs. They like to be prepared. And I say that as someone who has a neurodiverse child who likes to know exactly what time things are happening when and isn't very good if they're moved. Somebody said it's about the individual being able to wear their neurodiversity on their sleeve, almost like a badge, without feeling like it's going to count against them. And then being given the tools to survive in the workplace, be that having their interview questions in advance so they can be prepared or, you know, far more about this than I do. But what would you say to that? That structure is is, is useful for everybody. Most of the things that modifies for autistic people in work are useful to everybody. They welcome having a clear understanding as to what they're doing. They welcome having advanced warning of changes that are going to happen. Yes, so true. Yeah, we all function better when we're not throwing curveballs. Before we finish, how do you feel about the future for those with neurodiversity? As a parent, as I've said, as someone with neurodiversity, I feel encouraged by the fact that we're having this conversation and and that it feels like it's being prioritised. You know this world a lot better than I do. How do you feel about the future? Well, I'm almost proud that I've helped make it slightly better for your generation than it was for mine. And that's how it should be. We should always be improving thinking of vulnerable members in our society and how we can adapt society rather than expecting them to adapt to the society that we live in. Yeah, absolutely. My final point is you talk a lot about the importance of creating a legacy. And so much of what you say rings true. I mean, you have achieved so much. It says here, what do you think yours is? I mean, how would you answer that? I certainly aim to have a legacy of an inspirational woman who has inspired others and done new things, made a difference in the world. That certainly drives me in a positive way. I think you're very young to be thinking in terms of legacy. As you get older, you really start thinking, being realistic, I shouldn't be starting a 10-year project now. Uh, I have to be realistic and start smaller projects that can still make a difference. And that makes you even more strategic about what you mm. do because time is running short. Well, I mean, refugee, entrepreneur, philanthropist, it's pretty clear uh, what yours is. You are hugely inspiring. Um, I'm so, so very grateful for your time. And, and I often say this, but truly, I'm in awe of everything you've achieved. And I certainly... I'm passionate about continuing the conversation around autism, neurodiversity. And yeah, thank you for all your words of wisdom and everything you've done. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. The pleasure is all mine. That's it for today. I cannot encourage you more to listen to Dame Stephanie Shirley's TED Talk, Why Do Ambitious Women Have Flat Heads? And her Desert Island Discs podcast, first released in 2010 and then re-released in 2020. She has books a social media presence and so many words of wisdom but that's it for today thank you so much for listening if you enjoyed that then do please rate review subscribe and do encourage your friends to listen to especially if you think what we've discussed today would resonate with them we will be back soon thank you very much bye-bye when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers and if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.